Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Abdelaziz Bouteflika has been president of Algeria for 20 years. That's four terms. He was going to run for a fifth, but then a massive protest movement forced him to withdraw his candidacy. The withdrawal calls the future of Algeria's political system into question. And that's what we're going to talk about today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hey. Bonjour. Well, on this fine morning, we're going to talk about a protest movement, as we've discussed. Alex, you wrote the Vox Explainer on it. Why don't you walk us through the backstory about Bouteflika himself? Sure. So the first thing you actually need to know is that the country went through a brutal civil war in the 90s. You know, it was marked by torture, extrajudicial killings, bloody, about 200,000 people plus died, I mean, by conservative estimates. In 1999, Bouteflika comes into power, and he's by no means a nice guy, He's been repressive for a while, and he leads in that style, but what he's somewhat revered for, or actually I should say quite revered for, is taking broken pieces from that civil war and bringing the country together, quelling violence, starting the, you know, the formation of a state, getting an economy going. And so he was not—he's not the best guy, but he at least brought stability to the country. And now he's 82 years old. He also had a stroke a few years back that paralyzed him and made him basically mute— but he was running for president again, despite all of that. And no, running for president should be put in quotes, right? Because Algeria is not a free society with fair elections, right. right? Like you're imprisoned if you criticize the government too harshly and too loudly. Protest movements are not well received by the official government. You're not even government. allowed to protest literally at all in the capital. Yeah. And so this was this election was basically a coronation, right? The elites that supported him in Algerian society, which are really the sort of underpinnings of his continued power were like, we got to keep this guy in charge, which is weird, right? Because he seemed not really capable of ruling. You're exactly right. I mean, there's a reason why these elites wanted him. It's because they could continue to lead from behind, so to speak, keep their privileged position. They could keep their power and shadow rule Algeria. And, And when we say elites, we mean specifically people in the military, in the business community, and people who are sort of longtime political operators. Exactly. The sort of hardcore of people who have benefited from Bouteflika's authoritarian regime. So 
He is happens to be out of the country for medical care because, again, you know, he had this stroke. He's in really poor health. He hasn't actually been seen in public hardly at all for years. He'll issue, like, kind of written statements that people will come out and read. And so people were pissed when basically they announced that he's going to be running for another term, for a fifth term. He literally didn't even go himself to, like, fill out the paperwork he needed to run for a fifth term because he was in Switzerland getting medical care. He wasn't even in the country. So when this happened, all these protesters come into the streets. People are pissed, right? They're like, look, dude, we appreciate what you've done for us, you know, after this brutal civil war. But, like, it's time for you to go because you're really old and— we're not even sure who's running the country. It's not clear who's kind of behind him. It's sort of like this really gruesome, like, Weekend at Bernie situation where he's like this puppet that is just like this figurehead. Meanwhile, all these people behind the scenes who weren't even, like, fake elected, right, are the ones in power. And so you have these protesters out there saying, this is not okay anymore. The protests started in outer cities, but then moved into the capital, where, as Jen mentioned earlier, you're not supposed to protest under Algerian law. But the protests were so powerful, and there were so many people who were coming out, that it was very difficult for the government to simply just repress it without truly horrific mass violence. So they decided the better tactic would be to give in to the protests, to say, we're, we're just not going to have Bouteflika run for a fifth term. And there's a weird statement where he's like, me running for a fifth term was never on the table, which is weird because they just said a few days earlier. It was definitely was on, the on the table. <laughs> um, he also like really quickly got back into the country. Yeah, like he Super was, fast. Yeah, he's like, oh, I guess I should probably get back to the country since they're all rioting. <laughs> And so, like, now now what, right? Like, I don't, I don't actually know what happens at this point. I don't know if anybody does. No, I mean, and no, no one. And that's actually kind of one of the issues here. So one of the things you need to know from these protesters as well is one of the reasons Bouteflika survived the, you know, Arab Spring from a bit, you know, a few years back was because there is this core belief in Algeria after the Civil War that they want stability. And so you might not be super happy with Bouteflika, but you just kind of deal with them. Now that he's in theory, gone, although granted, I should say, he did cancel elections, so who knows? The question now is who takes over, and there has been, behind the scenes, among those ruling elites from the military, political, and business communities, people kind of vying to be the real leader of Algeria, but now they're all coming out to the fore. One is, you know, a general, one was, you know, formerly like a political protege, and it's just very unclear at this point who has not only just the skill to kind of unite the elites behind this person, but also to get the public to support him. And I don't want to just gloss over the point you touched on. He canceled the elections, right? So he said, okay, I won't run for a fifth term, but also we're not going to have elections right away anyway. So the protesters are still in the street. A lot of people think that this is just bullshit stalling tactic, that he's like, yeah, no, I'm totally not going to run, but then we just won't have a fucking election, so I'll just stay in power uh, for a while. It remains to be seen whether the protesters are actually going to accept this. So far, they haven't. They're still protesting. To me, this situation, the sort of chaos for the Algerian system that's been created by this, essentially a succession crisis, to me, it illustrates one of the vulnerabilities, or at least problems with these kind of hybrid authoritarian regimes that hold elections, but they aren't like real elections, right? Is that when something goes wrong, when the veneer of an election or the legitimacy of the system begins to crack, the election becomes a, a point around which people can rally and organize and protest and just generally get angry at the government. And it can galvanize mass 
public sentiment in a way that it's supposed to deflect, right? The entire point of holding these elections is to make people think the system is legitimate. But now that the, the sort of facade is cracked, people are angry. In these kinds of societies where you have such a clear sort of ruler, you know, once that person is even just nominally removed, then chaos happens and no one really knows what's next. With the beauty of true democratic systems is there is a succession process. We do not have one now. And on top of that, it could cause more fighting. This is a country where generally people are still worried about another civil war happening. There's no real signs of strife on the way, but that possibility still remains. I think it's a really important point too, just to, to add on that. The protesters are so worried about and so conscious of the legacy of the civil war that they literally were coming out and protesting, yelling, peace, peace, peace. Yeah. Like their slogans for protest were like, peaceful, peaceful, guys. So they're coming out and literally going, yeah, we really want the president to step down and not run for fifth term, but we're really nice about it. Like there's so much trauma in this country, which is why it's so critical right now what happens behind the scenes with these elites, whether they can manage to get their shit together and pick someone and come to some sort of consensus, or whether you're going to have like really fractious infighting that produces like a full political breakdown. I mean, it would be even better, of course, if they were actually to become a fully democratic country, if the elites were to go, hey, what if we had free and fair elections? Uh, as of now, that's probably pretty unlikely. And as it turns out, Algeria is not the only country where votes are sending shocks to the system. After the break, we're going to talk about Brexit again. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back. So this week, we are going to return to our feature on the Omni Shambles that is Brexit and answering all of your questions. But before we get to the specific questions, we want to talk a little bit about what has happened in the past week. Jen, what happened? So UK Prime Minister Theresa May brought her Brexit deal with the EU once again before Parliament for yet another vote. 
It was more or less the same exact deal that she brought before Parliament for a vote last time that was defeated. With the Irish backstop and all of the things that the hardcore Brexit right. people didn't like. So she basically, last time, if you remember, they sent her back and said, hey, you need to go back to the EU and renegotiate. She goes to the EU. She's basically unable to get any meaningful concessions. There were a couple super minor tweaks that nobody was really happy with. Didn't go far enough. She brings it back for a vote and eh, it's defeated again. Okay, so that was the first vote. There was also a second vote, right? That was basically a vote on whether or not they could have the no-deal Brexit, right? Basically, this is like the crisis scenario. They drop out of the EU with no deal in place whatsoever. So they all voted, look, there's no way we're going to have a no-deal Brexit. We're not going to do this bullshit drop out of the European Union with nothing in place, which is all well and good, except that they still don't agree on how to have a deal, so, like, they have this, mm, we should super make sure that we don't have a no deal, but it doesn't put them anywhere closer to actually coming to some sort of agreement. And then we had a third vote on Thursday, which was about whether or not to delay Brexit because of all of these problems that we've been discussing. And what happened with that? So the vote actually passed. Parliamentarians have decided to delay Brexit, which means the March 29th deadline may be extended. But there's a problem, which is it's an open question as to whether the EU will actually agree to extend the deadline. One reason why they might reject the extension is because it could be seen as a concession to the UK. Because the UK has had two years to come up with a proposal. They clearly haven't. And giving the UK more time makes it kind of easier on them to leave the EU. It's in the EU's interest to make it as hard as possible for a country to leave. Right. So that's why they might reject the extension. Why they might accept it is EU members also don't want to see the absolute disaster of what a no-deal Brexit will look like. And so perhaps they won't give an indefinite extension, maybe a slight one perhaps until June or something like that. To give the UK just a little bit more time. But you can imagine. Give me just a little more time. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, but you could imagine if they agree to an extension and the UK comes up to the new deadline, that maybe the, maybe the European Union wouldn't be as willing to make an, another exception in this case. So they actually had another vote, uh, just really quickly. Uh, they voted to allow Theresa May to bring her deal to a vote for a third time. So failed once, failed twice, third time's the charm. I don't know. I've heard that saying so before. So that's kind of what the the justification for this extension is. Like, look, I swear, I'll try one more time to force a vote and see if I can make it work. And if not, I don't know what's going to happen. So it's still pretty much up in the air. And that's where we are now. Well, it's good to see that this is still a complete mess. But now with the future of Brexit so uncertain, let's dig into the sort of reasons why we got to this bizarre crisis point, right? Starting with this question from Teresa Hallberg, which is, quote, did Russia influence the vote? Has this been investigated? If there was Russian influence, is that knowledge impacting the current Brexit decision? Well, Teresa, we know for a fact that Russia intervened. The question is the extent of Russian intervention. We know for a fact that Russian propaganda outlets like Russia Today and Sputnik were doing one-sided, super pro-Brexit coverage. We know for a fact that Russian botnets and Twitter accounts and stuff like that were pushing on the day of the vote pro-leave messages. Uh, the question is how much further it went than that. So there's a lot of uncertainty surrounding one of the big financiers of the Leaving the EU campaign, a guy named Aaron Banks, who seems to have just donated a mysterious amount of money that he should not have been able to afford to one part of the Leave campaign. 
And he has some shady links to Russia that have led a lot of people to speculate, including investigations that are ongoing, to suggest that he very well may have gotten money from Russia and been a laundering point that allowed Russia to fund the Leave campaign without actually, you know, funding the Leave campaign. And his name is Banks. And his name is Banks. There are also a lot of names that— American listeners in particular may be familiar with that are wrapped up in this Aaron Banks scandal. So he sends an email to Steve Bannon and others around October 2015 to request help from Cambridge Analytica, which is, you may remember, was involved in the Trump campaign data mining kind of effort to target voters during the 2016 presidential campaign here in the U.S. So you have a lot of these same people same kind of questionable ties to Russia. Again, nothing has been like proven in the court of law in that particular sense with the Aaron Banks stuff. Um, but we do know for a fact, Zach said, like the cyber campaign that we saw, same thing we saw in the U.S. And it's basically a lot of the same people involved. And there's a reason Russia would want to do this, right? What they want is to sow discord among the West to essentially break it up from within, favoring pro-Russia Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton is one way, and enforcing the UK, a, a pretty important EU member, to leave is it's a way to break— literally breaking it up. Literally, literally, yeah. It's literally breaking it up. So there are obviously these small tactical things that the Russians can do, but that sort of big strategy, that's what they're up to. And it's really funny. I just wanted to add— I went yesterday when we were talking about this question. I knew we were going to be talking about it on the show. And I just decided to go look at RT, Russia Today, right? And see, what are, what's their Brexit coverage like right now? And it's very much like amping up how, which, I mean, to be fair, it's not really that hard to amp up how fucked it all is. But it's really like the UK is crumbling and like all of this really dramatic stuff, which, yeah, fair, but also you fucking helped this. So stop it. So to Teresa's question, it's not really driving the debate right now, this fact of Russian interference. Like we just sort of know that it happened and we're trying to figure out the extent to which it did. But Britain is, is more consumed right now with the pressing problem of their economy potentially going off a cliff and not so much retrospectively worrying about the Russia stuff, at least as the like frontline debate. In in the UK, right. it is important. It's just it's not enough to invalidate the referendum. Right? Correct. It's not yeah. like British people did actually vote for this, even if Russia maybe helped convince them a little bit. Right, and we don't know the extent to which Russian interference actually impacted the right. vote outcomes. Right, like in the US. Yeah, it's it's very similar. Very very similar. Uh, Though there may not have been actual collusion. We'll see. No collusion. No collusion. No collusion. All right. Our next question comes from um, a listener named Mike. He asked, I don't understand what was so horrible about the EU that it drove levers. What are their issues anyway? This is an interesting question because there is what they said and then there's what the actual reasons were, right? So what did they say? On paper, the leave argument basically has to do with sovereignty. So their argument was that regulations that they have to abide by because they are part of the EU are restrictive, are not fair to the UK, Or even if they are, like, we didn't get to vote on this, we being the British people, right? We didn't get to elect these leaders who are doing this. It's this European parliament really far away. We can't develop our own regulatory policies and also our own immigration policies. And that's the big kind of second part of this that's related. So by being a member of the EU, you essentially have to agree to have fundamentally open borders within the EU. So people from other EU member states can come and go as they please without having to apply for like work visas and all of the kind of normal stuff you would have to do if you move to a foreign country to live or work. 
So free movement of people, free movement of goods, and you have to abide by the EU rules. And before we get to why that's all bullshit, I want to explain why that's a good cover. Because a lot of countries in the EU are genuinely upset that there is sort of a bigger body governing laws and making sure that things are more equal within the continent. This causes certain problems. I mean, in, in many countries I've been to, they go, yeah, well, you know, we would want to do trade this way, but we can't because of the EU or we want to do immigration this way, but we can't. And that's all well and good. But at the end of the day, they all chose to join this union. And so there it is. But th there's a reason why that sort of resonates to an audience. Right. Yeah. It's not crazy to say that there are concerns over sovereignty created by the EU. A lot of sophisticated observers say that, but it is just not the case that your average voter or, or most of the voters in the UK were thinking like, what we really need is to control our own regulations about cheese. Right. Right. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> cheesemakers like might have been. Maybe, but most but people don't, are, not, are not cheesemakers. Right. There was definitely one cheese lever, I believe. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The, the real issue is what Jen was hinting at, which is immigration, right? It... If you look at in-depth data on who voted for Brexit, there's a really great book on this point. I wrote a review of it recently called White Shift by a Britain-based scholar named Eric Kaufman, and he really digs into the data on public opinion. And what he finds is the overwhelming, overwhelming reason for voting was that people were upset about migration into Britain. And they were upset on a visceral cultural level. Migration from inside the EU was, for the most part, coming from European countries, specifically former communist bloc countries like Poland. But it wasn't just that. It was that the EU came to stand in for broader British concerns about migration. It stood in for the refugee crisis, which could have potentially allowed refugees to come into the UK. It stood in for even migration outside of the EU, like people immigrating from India and Pakistan, former British colonies, who would not have been affected by the Brexit vote, but but sort of the anxieties created that, by that migration, the cultural and racial anxieties created by it, got channeled into the EU as essentially a scapegoat for the stuff. If you remember, you know, the, the big, we called it the Syrian refugee crisis, but it was not just Syrians. It was, you know, a lot of people from Afghanistan, some people from like South and Central and Northern Africa. But there was this big kind of migration crisis that has more or less waned. You know, you had all of these migrants trying to get into countries like Italy and Greece that were close to ports where they could get in. But those countries are in the EU. So there was concern, right, that like, okay, well, if those countries let these people in, well, they're in the EU, which means we have to let them in, too, because they're not going to want to hang out in Greece and Italy. They're going to want to come to Britain because our economy is rocking. It was this kind of, yeah, economic anxiety, but a lot of it was about this cultural kind of anxiety, this racial anxiety. And you saw that in the, the Leave campaign. There's this, like, infamous now billboard that uh, I think Nigel Farage, who's one of the big, like, Leave guys, That's right. had put up and was pushing that showed this, like, horde of— largely brown migrants, people of darker skin color, on this long road coming in. It was the very clear propaganda they were pushing. Just to give a small example of what a big shift that is, I remember during the early days of discussions about immigration in the EU, like some people I knew from Spain were worried about what the, the stereotype was, the Polish plumber is coming. Right, the Polish plumber is going to come from the east and move westward, and that and and was going to take your job effectively. That was the narrative. So for the narrative to change from the Polish plumber to 
the brown people are coming is that it, it was it was stark not only for for me to watch but it was very clearly a shift in the narrative of, of the immigration debate in Europe well it- in Britain specifically, right, yeah. anti-immigrant sentiment has been really powerful for a long time. You know, there's a famous speech from several decades ago by a British MP named Enoch Powell called the Rivers of Blood speech, where he argued that if mass immigration from non-white countries continued into the UK, then it would face the same kind of racial conflict and crisis that you would see or that you had seen in the United States. And we should probably be clear, we're talking about all this. This is the propaganda. This is not the reality of right. what migration actually does to a country. Most studies show that immigrants actually raise the economy, right? Like they pay taxes, they come in and start businesses. And so now you see Brexit happening, which basically was, oh no, these people are going to invade our country. So now we take this big step. And our economy is collapsing because of it. Right. There there are like these rationalizations. These, uh, you know, we're worried about wages. We're worried about housing prices. We're worried about terrorism and crime. Right. And those aren't born, as you said, Jen, they're not just not borne out by the data. There's no serious hit to wages for mass migration. It usually is actually quite good for overall economic production. When you have more people, the economy tends to do better. It's more powerful. The real issue, the heart of the matter— is that British people are concerned about their culture and their identity being changed by people who look different and come from different backgrounds. And they didn't want to say that because when you say it out loud, it sounds super racist. Because it is. Yeah, it is, right? Uh, But they sublimate this in terms of they're bringing crime, they're bringing drugs, Mm -hmm. those kinds of arguments. They're not bringing their best. Well, no, seriously. (laughs) It's it's, it's a manifestation of the same problem, the same basic argument that you saw in the United States. Much like Russian interference, fear of immigrants is transnational. Just to bring it back to kind of the, the beginning of the segment in the news, part of the reason why we're still in this omnishambles is that the really hardcore leavers still really want a hard Brexit. They do not want to have to share any regulations or any immigration policies with the EU. And softer Brexit, like May's deal that she's actually trying to put forward, would give on some of those issues. So that's why you're still having these fights, because there are people who are still super fucking hardcore about this, and other people who are like, eh, this maybe not uh, wasn't the best idea, so let's kind of uh, take it easy here. And so you're still seeing this fight playing out today. So basically, if you want to understand Brexit in a sentence, it's we are going to tank our economy to stop immigrants from coming here. Bad bumper sticker, but... And worse policy. (laughs) (laughs) We'll leave you with that. I want to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton. I want to thank our social media manager, Lauren Katz, as well. And I want to encourage all of you to rate and subscribe and review Worldly wherever you get your podcasts. One last thing. We're conducting an audience survey. It takes no more than like five minutes to fill out. It really, really helps us with the show uh, to figure out what you guys are interested in, what you guys like, what you don't like. So if you could go fill it out, that would be fucking rad. Voxmedia.com slash pod survey. That's voxmedia.com slash pod survey. Please do it. It really helps us out. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. But that's when we sleep. 
Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work.